0: Welcome to Craftlit. The podcast for crafters who love books. My name is Heather Ordover, and I'm podcasting from my corner of the Sonoran Desert, the Old Pueblo, Tucson, Arizona. Episode 156. What is is this strange moisture this episode of craft Lit is brought to you by studiographia and craft Lit and holiday travel take you to london bath and wales october 2010 all sorts of interesting things are bumbling along about the trip to london bath and wales we uh diane and i have been conspiring about all sorts of nifty things. So I hope if you have not already made reservations that you do so soon. It is quite an exciting trip. And on that whole exciting thing, I am getting just tons of email from people who are new to Craftlet. And because of that, uh, not everybody has gone back to episode one to Kind of catch up some of you are actually listening in real time, and because of that I didn't introduce my interview with Dan and Tom quite enough so for those of you who did not go back to the beginning, let me tell you Tom Cathcart and Daniel Klein are two of the nicest gentlemen I have ever had the pleasure of speaking to. They wrote a couple years ago Plato and a platypus walked into a bar and oh, whatever it was we were reading at the time, made me think, oh, this would be brilliant. And I was teaching um, English 102, which is rhetoric and logic. And I thought, this is perfect. I should have my students read their book. And I wound up, let's see. Oh, I mentioned them on the podcast. I mentioned the book on the podcast and I included their names in the show notes. Well, I think it was Tom had set himself up to do uh, Google... Alerts. So, anytime his name was posted somewhere on the web, he got a link, and he emailed me and said, "Thank you so much for saying such nice things about our book. You know, we're really excited about it." And I wrote back and said, "Gee, I have this podcast. Would you like to be interviewed?" So, I think I spent an hour and a half on the phone with them two years ago. And so, when their new book, Heidegger and a Hippo Walk Through Those Pearly Gates, uh, popped onto my radar, I immediately emailed again and said, "Hey." shall we talk? And they said, oh, yes, we've got all this book tour craziness. And as soon as we're done with that, why don't we have a phone call? And they were, as you can tell, just as excited to be recorded for the podcast as I was to be recording them for the podcast. They are just lovely, funny, smart guys. And you know, there just aren't enough guys over the age of, say, 15, who will dress up as angels to pose on the back of their book. And, and Tom and Dan, Tom and Dan are those guys. And, and if only for that, I adore them. But, um, but so, that's, that's who I interviewed, and that's why. It was the, um, the combination of whatever the book was that we were reading at the time, and the fact that Tom emailed me out of the blue and, um, and agreed to come on the, the podcast. So, Tom and Dan, Next time they have another book out, I'm sure I will be talking to them yet again, and they'll probably accuse me of having knitted for the other one <laughs> once again. Ah, oh, So the title of this week's episode, What is This Strange Moisture?, has to do with the fact that, although you can't hear it, there's a ginormous rainstorm outside. There's a ginormous rainstorm outside right now. And last night there was a rainstorm so ginormous that we actually had a tornado watch or warning, whatever the worst one is. We had the worst one. So I'm not really sure how to tell if a tornado is coming. We live in a land that doesn't have anything like tornado sirens. You know, back in New York, we had the sirens. We had the warning sirens. If, um, well, when we lived not far from the nuclear power plant, we had those sirens, but you know, just, I don't know. Is this just the West where we're all so spread out that sirens are just kind of silly? But they kept saying on the news last night, all right, if you have any warning that bad weather is about to hit, and of course there's 50 mile an hour gusts outside the door and everything's blowing over and you can hear stuff rattling around and the trees are scraping the roof. And you're like, well, what constitutes bad weather at this point? It seems like pretty much that's what we've been going through for the last three hours. But they said, if, if you have, you know, any warning that bad weather is coming, don't stay where you are. Get to an interior room in the house away from windows. Well, luckily, my, my bedroom is actually kind of a closet. Like, we're surrounded by not windows. And the one sliding glass door that we have, because it is southern facing in Arizona, is, um, it has like a blast screen over it. One of those metal roll down, corrugated metal shields that you roll down over your window, which is great for security when I'm here alone, which I've been quite a bit for the last couple of weeks. But it's also really good for heat control. I know it doesn't sound like metal would be, but the insulation between the glass door and the metal, which has been painted a light color, um, it works pretty well. So, you know, as far as safety goes, my bedroom's probably a good one. So, I sat there. Well, basically, I sat up until the storm passed wondering if i should pull the boys half asleep out of their own beds and drag them into mine because andrew's out of town and finally after midnight the storm passed and i was eventually able to get to sleep so i am not running on a whole lot of hours of sleep when andrew's gone i just never sleep all that well you know you know it's like every noise plus you know i'm much more aware of kid noises and the night before thing one was coughing and you know you know you know how this is so so I'm still a little freaked out by the tornado thing but very happy about the rain thing we were down three and a half inches from where we should have been I think I already mentioned that in a previous podcast and now we're uh we're closing in on breaking even just out of two evenings of stormage It was a lot of rain lots of stranded hikers lots of flash floods and it's very deceptive in arizona there may be clouds on the mountain and you may be miles away from what feels like the mountains like where we are and your wash or ravine or whatever you want to call it it's a dry riverbed but it's not really a river it's like a dry creek bed or stream bed Uh, your wash could wind up bank to bank overflowing in a matter of minutes just because there's rain somewhere in the mountain or there was rain somewhere on the mountain earlier that day. So there were lots of stranded hikers yesterday afternoon and people who had to be rescued and and Old Tucson, I don't know if I've ever mentioned this before but Old Tucson historic Tucson, not old Tucson, the movie set, but but historic Tucson, the roads were built in a V formation with storm drains at the bottom of that V so that uh, they didn't have to build gutters or sidewalks, which was ever so much cheaper. But that also meant that when you hit the monsoons or actual rainy season time, um, winter and summer, we get rain. Uh, it meant that the streets would become rivers and There are literally pictures of people canoeing down the streets. As I recall, Alvernon was particularly good canoeing streetage, which is hysterical because now Alvernon's quite quite a major street. Ah, good times, good. And I actually found a restaurant. If you come to Tucson and you're anywhere near the northwest, go up Silverbell into Marana. This will all make sense if you look at a map. And on the west side of the street up above Cortero you will find a barbecue place called Lil Abner's that is what Tucson looked like when I first moved here dirt parking lot stables you know it it looks like it might collapse on you at any moment but the mesquite barbecue pit smells so bloody good you don't care so you go in and eat anyway it was great we went there last weekend we had a a well-deserved date night and uh really good barbecue, really good barbecue. And Andrew ate all the garlic bread because, because I couldn't. That was one of those moments where I was really hating on this whole gluten thing. But, you know, healthier, happier, thinner. I can't complain. I mean, I can,
1: as you know, well know,
0: but uh, I won't, I won't complain. So I have some links to hand over to you. Now, all of these links are in the show notes and they are uh they are mostly knitting related not entirely but mostly so the first is uh, tech knitting which is a blog the tech knitting blog she's an amazing knitter and she's really good at tutorials and she had a blog post about ravelry and at first you're going to look at this blog post and think why is heather telling me to look at this the beginning all about ravelry yada 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 you already know that however if you scroll down, you will find that she has linked to some amazing tutorials and all sorts of cool places, um, cool ideas, uh, things to do with very expensive sock yarn. Um, yeah, a bunch of tutorials. In fact, one of the tutorials I am linking you to, which is the very useful and quite comprehensive No Pearl garter stitch in the round tutorial. For those of you who knit, obviously if you are knitting in the round, like say you're doing a shawl where you start in the middle and you build out, so you're knitting in the round but it's going to lie flat, garter stitch would be very difficult because at some point you'd have to stop knitting knit stitches and start purling purl stitches in order to make that every other row bump thing happen. It's genius the way that this uh, tutorial works. I'm not going to blow it for you, but if you have ever wondered, or if you're one of those people who is feeling kind of mathematically interested right now due to the insane brilliance of Flatland, you might want to go take a look. I also have a couple of online knitting magazines that I hadn't really paid much attention to, but their winter 2009 issues are good. One is uh, Twist collective. And the other one, petite pearls, their winter issue. It's children's uh, garments because it's not just, you know, it's hats and things like that. Some beautiful little kids outfits there. And I, you know, I really have been living in um, kind of a nitty cloister. I don't often venture out from nitty because I know that I can count on all of those patterns to be really exquisite. Well, I'm I'm very impressed with some of the things I saw in Twist Collective and Petite Pearls. I also found a place called Pop Knits. Most of you probably already know these things. You're around the blogosphere much more than I am these days. Pop Knits is a vintage knitting redo or redux, depending on how cute you want to be. Um, and that's nice and all where they're taking vintage knitting patterns and kind of modernizing and redoing and, and using... Modern needle sizes and yarn names and things like that. But more than just the general oeuvre of the whole place, I really liked a very thick looking slipper sock. Now, this is a sock that could easily fit inside, say, a pair of clogs or even a pair of shoes, depending on how tight your shoes fit. But it's a woven knit stitch, which I've seen before in person, never seen it used this way. And because it's a very thick, woven stitch she figured out how to create a sock out of it so it's nice and padded it's nice and thick but interestingly the woven stitch is not supposed to be knit in the round this was a sock that was used to be knit flat and then seamed which is kind of uh, she figured out a way to do it in the round. So very clever, very useful. I was really happy about that. And then I also found from there a link to an an antique pattern library. So this would be the place where you could go to find those antique patterns that hadn't been retooled for modern needles. Craft Scene also had an article on how embroiderer Jenny Hart organizes her workroom. And as you know, I'm always interested to see how other people declutterify themselves and I also was interested because she was an um an embroiderer not a knitter and as a consequence her stash looks very different from mine um I think my my the part of my larger stash that looks like hers is actually in a box in the garage but I was very interested to see how she chose to th- set things up, and then she was interviewed as well, and that was kind of interesting. Then there's a, an online magazine, which I think is kind of new, called Fiber Republic, and it is, I'm going to read this to you, a utopia of all things knitterly, U-E-W-E-topia? Get it? Like a female sheep? utopia i thought it was actually kind of clever so fiber republic had some really beautiful patterns in there and i i do have to say you know on the whole um knitty online knitting magazine spectrum of things one of the things that i can say quite honestly is that everyone has taken a page from the knitty manual on interesting and clever photography and that showed up on on fiber republic as well it was really quite lovely now, as far as our Flatland goes, I don't know how many of you watched The Big Bang Theory, but the last episode or two episodes ago, maybe, there was a Flatland joke. And the best part was Sheldon, who is kind of the uber geek of the Greek the geek squad, uh, knew all about Flatland, understood all the math, didn't realize it was a satire. And one of the other characters said, you know, that's a satire in Victorian society, right? And he was absolutely flummoxed gobsmacked couldn't believe it couldn't process it and and here if you had been watching you would have known you would have known before they even said it and you would have felt so intelligent so I'm just going to kind of buy transitive property there we go of whatever television sitcom stories I'm giving you that moment of feeling smarter than the tv show So just enjoy that. Bask in the glow for a moment (laughs) and have fun with it. So Big Bang Theory. If you don't watch Big Bang Theory, it's really quite a clever show now that they've let Penny have a brain for a while there. The girl didn't have a brain. That wasn't so much fun. Uh, Karen in Surrey, British Columbia, tells us all. She's one who's going back to the beginning and is listening not in real time. She just finished listening to Turn of the Screw and asked if I knew that there was an excellent film version of the story from 1961. It's called The Innocents, I N N O C E N T S, with Deborah Kerr. Deborah Carr. Deborah Carr, spelled Kerr, pronounced Carr. Is that right? I have a vague memory that it's Deborah Carr. Anyway, it's the woman from The King and I, right? I think so. Anyway, so woo, woo, we have a movie version of Turn of the Screw, which she said was really quite good. So now I'm going to go off and explore this. I'm, I'm putting it out there to you without having checked it out myself, but you figure 1961 and Deborah, her, it's probably not so bad. And, and total um, apologies on my end, I owe an apology to Groucho Marx. Shannon emailed and said you know Woody Allen wasn't the one who said first I don't want to be part of club I wouldn't want to be part of a club that would want me it was Groucho so apologies to the memory of Groucho that was a huge mistake I actually knew that about 20 years ago and I guess that information got replaced with a phone number or something because it sure left my brain <sighs> So this week, the pattern from last week's episode is going up. This is the Hester Tea Cozy by Cheryl. It is a thing of beauty and a joy forever. It has some embroidery. It has some fabric. It has some knitting on it. It's really quite wonderful. And that pattern will be up attached to a button on the blog on the show notes and available to all for uh, the next few months. It'll be available until April, 2010, at which point the pattern will be replaced with information on how you can get the pattern from Cheryl. And again, don't forget if you have a pattern you'd like to share, if you're just starting out as a designer or you have a short story or you have some crochet pattern or embroidery chart or cross stitch chart or you know anything feel free we are certainly a multi crafty group and there is no reason for you to hesitate if you are not a knitter you should still send stuff on you can send that to heather at craftlit.com and on the craftlit.com side of things it seems that the website is back i hesitate but i am hopeful it it looks like we've fixed the major problem so you know keep your fingers crossed. I'm going to readdress the redirect and everything should be as normal as it was before, except working. January, January, 2010, we have an incentive book, Enchanted Adornments. I talked about this, I talked about this before on the podcast and mentioned that it is creating mixed media jewelry with metal clay, wire, resin, and more. It's by Cynthia Thornton, and it's available. If you donate during the month of January, your name will be thrown into a pot, and I will draw a name, and someone's going to get the book. Woohoo! Okay, I think that's actually all the business that I needed to get through, which I should probably keep, keep rolling on before the next tornado comes, because I can hear the wind kicking up again. Until you would. This climate change stuff... It's real interesting. And it's not cold. It's still not cold. It's 60. Well, it was 60 during the day. It's probably down to 40-something now. I don't know. I don't know what to tell you. But it's been too darn warm here and too darn dry. And that really is lousy. But tonight, tonight we start the next section of Flatland. Tonight, Flatland Part 2, which is called Other worlds. And it begins with a quote from The Tempest, Shakespeare's The Tempest, O brave new worlds that have such people in them. Now some of you will remember this is the line from which Aldous Huxley grabbed his title for the book Brave New World. He of course used it kind of ironically. Here I think Abbott is using it a little bit more honestly-ish. I mean we certainly don't think of the square and lines, or anything like that, as people. But they refer to themselves, at least in these chapters, as humans. And they certainly think they are sentient beings. They are people. Which is kind of interesting. And I'll tell you, one of the reasons why I really liked these chapters a lot as I was listening along. Obviously, in the first 12 chapters, sections of the book, we have a gotten to know quite a good deal about this place called Flatland. We understand the math a little bit more. We understand their society and the benefits and limitations and strangeness therein. But we haven't really, I don't know, I had this aha moment listening to this where I just kind of yelled at no one in particular in the car as I was listening to the audio oh my gosh this Abbott guy is a freaking genius and I screamed that at the ethers because he he goes into line land so this is down to one dimension now a square goes into line land and that's great and all but you know, Abbott's gotten us so comfortable with talking about a two-dimensional world that for him to take a square and stay in his point of view and take it down a step further into Line Land and make it understandable, I just, I was overwhelmed. And then I was kind of smacking myself on the side of the head thinking, well, Duh! I mean, he just spent the last twelve chapters doing that for you with the second dimension. Why is it such a big deal that he's doing it with you for the first dimension? And I don't think I think I think what happened is that you don't realize the extraordinarily creativity and ability to use metaphor that Abbott has, or at least I didn't I didn't notice it as powerfully as I did when he went down to one dimension. And uh, I'm just so blown away. And it really does kind of, it works with this quote. This is where Miranda, who is Prospero's daughter, they've been alone on an island with all sorts of crazy people and things and Caliban and fairies and all this stuff. So she's never really seen people before aside from her father. And then a group is shipwrecked and she sees them. And this is what she says. And it's um, prefaced by... O wonder how many godly creatures are there here, how beauteous making is, O brave new worlds that have such people in them. And it's interesting because Prospero's next line is, tis new to thee, which is just such a blow, you know? I mean, it just kind of brings back all of that tempest angst. You know, it's one of Shakespeare's later plays and it's certainly not one of his happier ones and it's complicated and frustrating and sad, but it also has this wonderful line that gets quoted all the time, and it's, it's just kind of nice to know what book ends the quote, I think. So, I've already let you know that in this chapter, which is called How I Had a Vision of Lineland, we have a square visiting a one-dimensional world. How does he do this, you might ask? Well, he has a vision, but he doesn't just have a vision. He has a vision on the last day of the 1999th year of our era, 1999, which of course is quite a distance in the future for Edwin Abbott Abbott. But for us, it's kind of interesting and kind of quaint and a little kind of funny. But, you know, so many books, 1984 and all of them wound up projecting into the future. And so far, I think the only one that I've read that really seems to have gotten it pretty darn right, is Earth by David Brin, which I know I've mentioned before. He does a wonderful job of being predictive, and I'm not trying to say that Edwin Abbott Abbott is trying to be predictive in this at all. I just thought it was kind of interesting that he takes it to the end of the millennia, or, you know, there's the whole, is the 1999 the end of the millennia, or is 2000 the end of the millennia, blah, 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 blah. Everybody can get into mathematical and calendrical arguments about that, and I'm not going there. So, so, A Square is going to head into Lineland and he's going to come into contact with the king. The king's commentary, I think, says it all. I just love listening to the conversation with the king. I also really love how procreation is explained and how this odd and amazing balance is achieved. It's it's really quite creative and and lovely and um i think that's all i'm gonna say so it it is a square who is having this journey in this chapter this is chapter 13 and it is read by our very own listener anita
1: flatland part two other lands section 13 how i had a vision of limeland it was the last day but one of the ninth year of our era, and the first day of the long vacation. Having amused myself till a late hour with my favorite recreation of geometry, I had retired to rest with an unsolved problem in my mind. In the night I had a dream. I saw before me a vast multitude of small straight lines, which I naturally assumed to be women, interspersed with other beings still smaller and of the nature of lustrous points, all moving to and fro and one in the same straight line, and, as nearly as I could judge, with the same velocity. A noise of confused, multitudinous chirping or twittering issued from them at intervals as long as they were moving, but sometimes they ceased from motion and then all was silence. Approaching one of the largest of what I thought to be women, I accosted her, but received no answer. A second and third appeal on my part were equally ineffectual. Losing patience at what appeared to me intolerable rudeness, I brought my mouth into a position full in front of her mouth so as to intercept her motion and loudly repeated my question. Woman, what signifies this concourse and this strange and confused chirping and this monotonous motion to and fro in one and the same straight line? I am no woman, replied the small line. I am the monarch of the world, but thou, whence intrudest thou into my realm of Limeland?" Receiving this abrupt reply, I begged pardon if I had in any way startled or molested his royal highness, and describing myself as a stranger, I besought the king to give me some account of his dominions. But I had the greatest possible difficulty in obtaining any information on points that really interested me for the monarch could not refrain from constantly assuming that whatever was familiar to him must also be known to me, and that I was simulating ignorance in jest. However, by persevering questions, I elicited the following facts. It seemed that this poor ignorant monarch, as he called himself, was persuaded that the straight line which he called his kingdom, and in which he passed his existence, constituted the whole of the world and indeed the whole of space. Not being able either to move or to see, save in his straight line, he had no conception of anything out of it. Though he had heard my voice when I first addressed him, the sounds had come to him in a manner so contrary to his experience that he had made no answer. Seeing no man, as he expressed it, and hearing a voice as it were from my own intestines. Until the moment when I placed my mouth in his world, he had neither seen me, nor heard anything except confused sounds beating against what I called his side, but what he called his inside or stomach, nor had he even now the least conception of the region from which I had come. Outside his world or line, all was a blank to him. Nay, not even a blank, for a blank implies space. Say, rather, all was non-existent. His subjects, of whom the small lines were men, and the points women, were all alike confined in motion and eyesight to that single straight line, which was their world. It needs scarcely be added that the whole of their horizon was limited to a point. Nor could anyone ever see anything but a point. Man, woman, child, thing, each was a point to the eye of a linelander. Only by the sound of the voice could sex or age be distinguished. Moreover, each individual occupied the whole of the narrow path, so to speak, which constituted his universe, and no one could move to the right or left to make way for passers-by. It followed that no linelander could ever pass another. Once neighbors, always neighbors. Neighborhood with them was like marriage with us. Neighbors remained neighbors till death did them part. Such a life! With all vision limited to a point, and all motion to a straight line, seemed to me inexpressibly dreary, and I was surprised to note the vivacity and cheerfulness of the king, wondering whether it was possible amid circumstances so unfavorable to domestic relations to enjoy the pleasures of conjugal union. I hesitated for some time to question His Royal Highness on so delicate a subject, but at last I plunged into it by abruptly inquiring as to the health of his family. My wives and children, he replied, are well and happy. Staggered at this answer, for in the immediate proximity to the monarch, as I had noted in my dream before I entered Lineland, there were none but men. I ventured to reply, Pardon me, but I cannot imagine how your royal highness can at any time either see or approach their majesties, when there are at least half a dozen intervening individuals whom you can neither see through nor pass by. Is it possible that in Lineland, proximity is not necessary for marriage and for the generation of children? How can you ask so absurd a question? replied the monarch. If it were indeed as you suggest, the the universe would soon be depopulated. No, no, neighborhood is needless for the union of hearts, and the birth of children is too important a matter to have been allowed to depend upon such an accident as proximity. You cannot be ignorant of this. Yet, since you are pleased to affect ignorance, I will instruct you as if you were the veriest baby in Lineland. Know, then, that marriages are consummated by means of the faculty of sound and the sense of hearing. You are, of course, aware that every man has two mouths or voices, as well as two eyes, a bass at one and a tenor at the other of his extremities. I should not mention this, but I have been unable to distinguish your tenor in the course of our conversation. I replied that I had but one voice, and that I had not been aware that his royal highness had two. That confirms my impression, said the king, that you are not a man, but a feminine monstrosity, with a bass voice and an utterly uneducated ear. But to continue... "'Nature herself having ordained that every man should wed two wives.' "'Why two? asked I. "'You carry your affected simplicity too far,' he cried. "'How can there be a completely harmonious union without the combination of the four and one, "'that is, the bass and tenor of the man, and the soprano and contralto of the two women?' "'But supposing,' said I, "'that a man should prefer one wife, or three? It is impossible, he said. It is as inconceivable as that two and one should make five, or that the human eye should see a straight line. I would have interrupted him, but he proceeded as follows. Once in the middle of each week, a law of nature compels us to move to and fro with a rhythmic motion of more than usual violence, which continues for the time you would take to count a hundred and one. In the midst of this choral dance, at the 51st pulsation, the inhabitants of the universe pause in full career, and each individual sends forth his richest, fullest, sweetest strain. It is in this decisive moment that all our marriages are made. So exquisite is the adaptation of base to treble, of tenor to contralto, that oftentimes the loved ones, though 20,000 leagues away, recognize at once the responsive note of their destined lover. And penetrating the paltry obstacles of distance, love unites the three. The marriage is in that instant consummated and results in a threefold male and female offspring, which takes its place in lineland. What? Always threefold, said I? Must one wife? Then always have twins? Base-voice monstrosity. Yes, replied the king. How else could the balance of the sexes be maintained if two girls were not born for every boy? Would you ignore the very alphabet of nature? He ceased, speechless for fury, and some time elapsed before I could induce him to resume his narrative. You will not, of course, suppose that every bachelor among us finds his mates at the first wooing in this universal marriage chorus? On the contrary... The process is by most of us many times repeated. Few are the hearts whose happy lot it is at once to recognize in each other's voices the partner intended for them by providence, and to fly into a reciprocal and perfectly harmonious embrace. With most of us, the courtship is of long duration. The wooer's voices may perhaps accord with one of the future wives, but not with both, or not at first with either, or the soprano and contralto may not quite harmonize. In such cases, nature has provided that every weekly chorus shall bring the three lovers into closer harmony. Each trial of voice, each fresh discovery of discord, almost imperceptibly induces the less perfect to modify his or her vocal utterance as to approximate the more perfect. And after many trials and many approximations, the result is at last achieved. There comes a day at last when, while the wanted marriage chorus goes forth from universal lineland, the three far-off lovers suddenly find themselves in exact harmony. And before they are aware, the wedded triplet is wrapped vocally into a duplicate embrace and nature rejoices over one more marriage and over three more births. End of section 13 Read by Anita Mancia.
0: Isn't that image just kind of wonderful? I, I found myself quite moved by that. Maybe it's because I was in choir and I've actually been in the presence of having harmonics happen, which I don't know. It's where everybody's singing a note and the vibrations actually create a note above the note that you're actually singing. It's weird and wonderful. And I just kind of had that vision of this music. You know, there's the music of the spheres. You never think of the music of the lines somehow. They just don't seem like musical things to me. But, but here, that's where Abbott went. There is a diagram, which I'm including on the show notes, of um, my view of Lineland, where A Square has drawn himself and the line that he's looking at. And he's showing you where his eye is in relation to all of that. So, I will be including that for you to look at. And, um, and then the next bit is really quite brief. This next one is how I'd vainly tried to explain the nature of flatland. So a couple of fun things here. Um, this, <laughs> I just love the title, how I vainly tried to explain the nature of flatland. And of course it would be very difficult for a single dimensioned being to perceive two dimensions, just as it is equally difficult for us to perceive of a fourth dimension. And of course, that's where Abbott is going, being a good mathematician at heart. He's going to use um, a scientific principle, I guess I can call it that, and you will think to yourself, huh, isn't that more modern than back when he was writing? And the answer is no, and I'm just going to go out and say it. The Doppler effect was discovered in 1842 by Christian Doppler, which I didn't know. He died in 1853. He was born in 1803. So this is, well, you're like, you'll hear it. It's about judging sound and distance. So you'll hear more about that. But the the fact is, yes, Abbott knew about it. And yes, it was a contemporary theory to him. And no, there's no problem with him including it. I know I at first went and then I looked it up and everything's fine. Uh... So yes, the the conversation's very funny. There are, let's see, there's one. Yes, there's one more image here that I will be including in the show notes, although less, less important, really, than the first one. I'm just double-checking to make sure that there aren't two. I could have sworn there were two, but maybe not. Nope, there's only one. So I will have those in the show notes for you. Neither of these two diagrams for today's chapters are so earth-shaking that you're not going to be able to understand it. There were previous diagrams where you really needed to be able to see the eye and how it was perceiving the polygon and all that stuff. Today's, not so much. You can probably get away with it. But, you know, I want to make sure you have it. And, and there's a wonderful conversation about what it would be like to live in a one-dimensional world. And I just, again, Abbott, genius so this is fun here you go
1: chapter 14 flatland section 14 how i vainly tried to explain the nature of flatland thinking that it was time to bring down the monarch from his raptures to the level of common sense i determined to endeavor to open up to him some glimpses of the truth that is to say of the nature of things in flatland so i began thus "'How does your royal highness distinguish the shapes and positions of his subjects? "'I, for my part, noticed by the sense of sight, before I entered your kingdom, "'that some of your people are lines, and others points, and that some of the lines are larger. "'You speak of an impossibility,' interrupted the king. "'You must have seen a vision, for to detect the difference between a line and a point "'by the sense of sight is, as everyone knows, in the nature of things, impossible.' but it can be detected by the sense of hearing and by the same means my shape may be exactly ascertained behold me i am a line the longest in lineland over 6 inches of space of length i ventured to suggest fool said he space is length interrupt me again and i have done i apologized "'But,' he continued scornfully, "'since you are impervious to argument, you shall hear with your ears how by means of my two voices I reveal my shape to my wives, who are at this moment six thousand miles, seventy yards, two feet, eight inches away, the one to the north, the other to the south. Listen, I call them.' He chirruped, and then complacently continued, My wives, at this moment receiving the sound of one of my voices, closely followed by the other, and perceiving that the latter reaches them after an interval in which sound can traverse 6.457 inches, infer that one of my mouths is 6.45 inches further from them than the other, accordingly know my shape to be 6.457 inches. But you will of course understand that my wives do not make this calculation every time they hear my two voices. They made it, once for all, before we were married. But they could make it at any time. And in the same way, I can estimate the shape of any of my male subjects by the sense of sound. But how, said I, If a man feigns a woman's voice with one of his two voices, or so disguises his southern voice that it cannot be recognized as the echo of the northern, may not such deceptions cause great inconvenience? And have you no means of checking frauds of this kind by commanding your neighboring subjects to feel one another? This, of course, was a very stupid question, for feeling could not have answered the purpose. But I asked with the view of irritating the monarch, "'and I succeeded perfectly. "'What?' cried he in horror. "'Explain your meaning.' "'Feel, touch, come into contact,' I replied. "'If you mean by feeling,' said the king, "'approaching so close as to leave no space between two individuals, "'know, stranger, that this offense is punishable in my dominions by death, "'and the reason is obvious.' The frail form of a woman being liable to be shattered by such an approximation must be preserved by the state. But since women cannot be distinguished by the sense of sight from man, the law ordains universally that neither man nor woman shall be approached so closely as to destroy the interval between the approximator and the approximated. And indeed, what possible purpose would be served by this illegal and unnatural excess of approximation, which you call touching? when all the ends of so brutal and coarse a process are attained at once more easily and more exactly by the sense of hearing. As to your suggested danger of deception, it is non-existent, for the voice, being the essence of one's being, cannot be thus changed at will. But come, suppose that I had the power of passing through solid things and that I could penetrate my subjects one after another, even to the number of a billion verifying the size and distance of each by the sense of feeling. How much time and energy would be wasted in this clumsy and inaccurate method? Whereas now, in one moment of audition, I take as it were the senses and statistics, local, corporal, mental, and spiritual, of every living being in Lineland. Hark! Only hark! So saying, he paused and listened, as if in an ecstasy, "'to a sound which seemed to me no better than a tiny chirping "'from an innumerable multitude of Lilliputian grasshoppers. "'Truly,' replied I, "'your sense of hearing serves you in good stead "'and fills up many of your deficiencies. "'But permit me to point out that your life in Lineland "'must be deplorably dull, to see nothing but a point, "'not even to be able to contemplate a straight line, "'nay, not even to know what a straight line is.' To see, yet to be cut off from those linear prospects which are vouchsafed to us in flatland. Better surely to have no sense of sight at all than to see so little. I grant you I have not your discriminative faculty of hearing, for the concert of all lineland which gives you such intense pleasure is to me no better, no better than a multitudinous twittering or chirping. But at least I can discern by sight a line from a point. And let me prove it. Just before I came into your kingdom, I saw you dancing from left to right and then from right to left with seven men and a woman in your immediate proximity on the left and eight men and two women on your right. Is that not correct? It is correct, said the king, so far as the numbers and sexes are concerned, though I know not what you mean by right and left, but I deny that you saw these things. For how could you see the line, that is to say, the inside of any man? But you must have heard these things and then dreamed that you saw them. And let me ask what you mean by those words left and right. I suppose it is your way of saying northward and southward. Not so, replied I. Besides your motion of northward and southward, there is another motion which I call from right to left. King Exhibit to me, if you please, this motion from left to right. I. Nay, that I cannot do, unless you could step out of your line altogether. King. Out of my line? Do you mean out of the world? Out of space? I. Well, yes, out of your world. Out of your space. For your space is not the true space. True space is a plane. But your space is only a line. King, if you cannot indicate this motion from left to right by yourself moving in it, then I beg you to describe it to me in words. I, if you cannot tell your right side from my left, I fear that no words of mine can make my meaning clearer to you. But surely you cannot be ignorant of so simple a distinction. King, I do not in the least understand you. I, alas... How shall I make it clear? When you move straight on, does it not sometimes occur to you that you could move in some other way, turning your eye round so as to look in the direction towards which your side is now fronting? In other words, instead of always moving in the direction of one of your extremities, do you never feel a desire to move in the direction, so to speak, of your side? King, never, and what do you mean? How can a man's inside front in any direction? Or how can a man move in the direction of his inside? I. Well then, since words cannot explain the matter, I will try deeds, and I will move gradually out of lineland in the direction which I desire to indicate to you. At the word, I began to move my body out of lineland. As long as any part of me remained in his dominion and in his view, the king kept exclaiming, I see you. I see you still. You are not moving. But when I had at last moved myself out of his line, he cried in his shrillest voice. She is vanished. She is dead. I am not dead, replied I. I am simply out of Line Land. that is to say, out of the straight line which you call space, and in the true space, where I can see things as they are. And at this moment, I can see your line, or side, or inside, as you are pleased to call it, and I can also see the men and women on the north and south of you, whom I will now enumerate, describing their order, their size, and the interval between each. When I had done this at great length, I cried triumphantly, Does this at last convince you? And with that, I once more entered lineland, taking up the same position as before. But the monarch replied, If you were a man of sense, though, as you appear to have only one voice, I have little doubt you are not a man, but a woman. But if you had a particle of sense, you would listen to reason. You ask me to believe that there is another line besides that which my senses indicate and another motion besides that of which I am daily conscious. I, in return, ask you to describe it in words or indicate by motion that other line of which you speak. Instead of moving, you merely exercise some magic art of vanishing and returning to sight. And instead of any lucid description of your new world, you simply tell me the numbers and sizes of some forty of my retinue, facts known to any child in my capital. Can anything be more irrational or audacious? Acknowledge your folly or depart from my dominions. Furious at his perversity, and especially indignant that he professed to be ignorant of my sex, I retorted in no measured terms. Besotted being, you think yourself the perfection of existence, while you are in reality the most imperfect and imbecile. You profess to see, whereas you can see nothing but a point. You plume yourself on inferring the existence of a straight line, but I can see straight lines and infer the existence of angles, triangles, squares, pentagons, hexagons, and even circles. Why waste more words? Suffice it that I am the completion of your incomplete self. You are a line, but I am a line of lines, called in my country a square, and even I, infinitely superior though I am to you, am of little account among the great nobles of Flatland, whence I have come to visit you, in the hope of enlightening your ignorance. Hearing these words, the king advanced towards me with a menacing cry, as if to pierce me through the diagonal and in that same moment there arose from myriads of his subjects a multitudinous war cry, increasing in vehemence till at last methought it rivaled the roar of an army of a hundred thousand isosceles and the artillery of a thousand pentagons. Spellbound and motionless, I could neither speak nor move to avert the impending destruction, and still the noise grew louder, and the king came closer. When I awoke, To find the breakfast bell recalling me to the realities of Flatland. End of section 14. Read by Anita Mancia. So I know
0: you have that moment when you're like, oh, really? That's how you're going to end it? It's going to be, and you were there, and you were there, Auntie <laughs> Em, Auntie M. Yeah, I know, but remember when it was written? That's over a hundred years ago, and it's actually, it, it works. It works. He had a vision. Doesn't mean it's not true. Just means he had it in a dream, and maybe that's a normal thing for people in Flatland. We don't know. But it does set you up for the next bit, because chapter 15 is... Concerning a stranger from Spaceland. And that is where we will pick up next week. So I hope you enjoyed these two. Now and and don't worry, I mean, a lot of people have really enjoyed the social satire that went along with the first half of the book. And you got some, obviously, because this conversation with the king, with a monarch, with yeah. So you got some in today's chapters. There will be more, you know, more interesting stuff is gonna happen and more commentary. And wasn't it kind of cool how A Square just assumed that the short line segments were women and they turned out to be men? Horror of horrors. And then there was kind of the interesting thing about the two voices, a bass and a tenor, and how if you only have one, you're a woman masquerading. I just, it's wonderful, wonderful stuff. Love it, love it. All right, and with that, I'm going to go read up for my classes next week because teaching an honors class means I have to keep up with the reading this semester. Who told me that? No one. No one. It's all news. I'm going to go read. I hope you have a wonderful week and stay dry and warm wherever you are. And if you are in Southern California, I hope you have not washed away like so many homes evidently have. I have friends all up and down California, and it's been very wet. So, you take care of yourselves, and I will talk to you next week. Have a great one. Bye. Please remember to support the people who support Craft Lit. Visit Knitting Out Loud. Listen while you knit. And the Loop Knittery in New Zealand at loopknittery.co. And please visit the blogs and sites of Craftlit supporters. Those links can be found in the sidebar of the show notes. The show notes can be found at craftlit.com. Craftlit can also be accessed by its own iPhone application. You can purchase it at the iPhone or iTouch application store, or you can subscribe free at iTunes. CraftLit is made possible by the generous support of its listeners, and for that, I am truly grateful. And remember if your hands are too busy to pick up a book, at least you can turn one on.